volatility, uncertainty, complexity. This is the work environment that is our reality. What will leaders need to know to be successful in the future? Who will they need to be to build team member commitment? How will they need to show up to create a motivating environment for their people? Welcome to the Sal Sylvester on the Future of Leadership podcast, a dialogue about how leaders will need to adapt to be successful in a rapidly changing world. And now, please join your host and executive producer, Sal Sylvester, to engage in the conversation about the future of leadership and how to transform people into confident leaders. Hello, listeners. This is Sal Sylvester. I'm the founder and CEO of 512 Solutions, an executive coaching and leadership development firm based in Boulder, Colorado. I'm also the founder and CEO of Coach Metrics, a cloud-based tool that we developed to measure behavioral change in coaching and leadership development. Welcome. I am so excited to have you with us today to talk about the future of leadership. And that's what this podcast is all about. As society changes and our world changes, what does that mean for leaders? As the complexity of our businesses and organizations increase, who will leaders need to be and how will they have to show up to be successful? So that's where my curiosity lies as an executive coach and leadership development facilitator. And I know that coaching thousands of people globally, that what leaders have done in the past isn't necessarily what it's going to take for them to be successful in the future. So I'm excited to be in a place of inquiry with you, my listeners and my guests, to explore what the future of leadership looks like. All right. I am honored and excited to share this interview with you today with Eric Rosa. He is an amazing, amazing leader, and you're going to be blown away by this conversation. Eric is the former CEO of Datalogix. He led the organization through an acquisition by Oracle for over a billion dollars. And in the past four years, he's been the general manager of the Oracle Data Cloud, where he saw multi-billion dollar acquisitions throughout his, his four years. He's a graduate of Stanford University. And if none of that is enough, he's also the founder of CrossFit Sanitas in Boulder, Colorado. It's a fitness facility that has consistently been ranked as a top five CrossFit gym in the U.S. and repeatedly named a CrossFit and best gym in Boulder, Colorado, which if you know anything about Boulder, it's one of the fittest towns in in the country, if not the world. Eric is a driven, results-oriented leader, but he also has this really unique combination of being authentic He cares about people. He cares about culture. He cares about growth. He cares about making a contribution. And you would think with Eric's background in tech, leading tech companies and in data science, you might think that this interview is about tech trends and artificial intelligence and big data. I've got news for you. It is not. We're going to talk about topics that are way more important to the health of your people and your organization. Let's go to the interview now. Eric, welcome. Good to, uh, good to have you on the show today. It's great to be here, Sal. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So, Eric, the, the last four years, you've been general manager of Oracle Data Cloud. You've led a, a number of multi-billion dollar acquisitions. Prior to that, you were CEO of Datalogix, where you ultimately led that organiz- organization to an acquisition with Oracle. Love to hear about some of the important trends that you're noticing in the workplace, in, in our work environment, maybe even in society in general. 
Well, the, I think the first one that jumps out, and I think it's probably even become cliche, but it's so central to everything is kind of the acceleration in the, uh, in the pace of change. Mm. And so I, I've been thinking about one thing recently, and I don't know that we acted on this, but I certainly will be acting on it going forward, which is this notion that we have these constructs of a year that were set, you know, however many gazillion years ago as we started to break up time as humanity did, right? So a year is not something that, in my view, is necessarily like ordained from above, right? It's just a convenient way to track time. And it's the way that we think about budgeting. And obviously for public companies, then you have the quarter becomes kind of paramount as well. And I don't know, I'm not so convinced that these constructs, that these time domains are as relevant and, and, and useful as maybe they were at one point. And so I'll, I'll just give you one very concrete example. I mean, we, I think any public company CEO that you talk to will tell you that managing to the quarter may have some benefits from a discipline standpoint, but it, it certainly has a lot of downsides because of the short-term thinking and so on that, that, is, right. that it ensues. I think on the annual basis where I see a, a big impact is the, you know, the notion of budgeting. And you know, we can, we'll talk more about kind of goals and what's your objective function as a company and a leader. But you know, we tend to set that in annual increments as probably the most, you know, the most important dimension because it, it governs budgets, which govern bonuses for people, which incent behavior and so on. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking more and more about the fact that I think a year may be just too long a period given the current pace of change. And no one has really questioned that, that I've ever talked to. So I want to (laughs) start by questioning that one. I've always budgeted on an annual basis. And I think a board would say, you're being lazy, sloppy, trying to game it if you rebudget within the course of a year. But what if we broke that open? And I don't have a solve on this yet, but Mm -hmm. I think this is a fundamental construct that needs to be challenged right now. And I can tell you that the number of CEOs that I mentor and boards I serve on, I'm going to be provoking with this question and saying, like, I'm not sure. It will be quite complex from a business system standpoint, even once you get through philosophy, because now you got to think about, well, how does that impact compensation? But it might be time to admit that we don't know, for a, especially for a high growth business, what the second six months of the next 12 months look like. Right. We barely know what the current quarter looks like. And so what do you do? You can just say, oh, we're going to do what we always did. But maybe that's the lazy and sloppy thing to do. Mm-hmm. So I'm very interested in that question right now. Yeah, that's really interesting. And you know, we've seen this shift certainly at the team level, the way that agile software development teams might think and moving toward a two-week sprint or a weekly sprint or in some cases releasing code every day. But that thinking hasn't necessarily crossed at the organizational level. Yeah, I mean, you're right. What I mean, budgeting is anything but agile. I mean, it's, it's, it literally is anything but agile. And as we all know, there's a lot of benefits to some, some version of agility, going, you know, seeping into every business process, right? Right, right. Yeah, and even as I'm speaking of budgeting, talking to clients today, I mean, it's mid-June and they're already starting to think about 2020 budgets and we haven't even gotten through the first half of 2019. So yeah, that's fascinating. What else are you noticing? So there's this idea of accelerating pay, uh, pace of change. What else are you noticing in the workplace today? 
Well, I think the concept of let's put this in quotes because it, it's a it's a uh, term that's laden right with different meanings for different people. But the concept of loyalty mm-hmm. and which ties into kind of both engagement, but also just tenure, right? Which is an easier thing to measure, right? How long does somebody stay? And this notion is everybody a mercenary in the gig economy, even for employees and all these kinds of things. And I guess entities at the end of the day are abstract. People would say like, I'm a company man, right? In the old, that would be the stereotype of the old days. And in our business, maybe I or someone else would say, you know, I love data logics or I love Oracle or Oracle Data Cloud or whatever, right? At the end of the day, a lot of these kind of loyalties and relationships as they impact tenure and engagement have, have you know, a lot to do or all to do with kind of people relationships and, and the, the cost and benefit of engaging in, in this work situation. And so I am not cynical about loyalty and tenures in any way. I don't, I don't necessarily accept that it's normal for, for people to turn over or desirable for people to turn over on average in under two years if you're an engineer in the Valley. You know, I actually don't, there are a certain number of startup costs in any situation, right? It takes a while to, to learn business systems and process and context and how to get things done and where the restroom is and all these other right. things and to have impact. And so you want to amortize at a minimum, I think one would say 90 days for any role to, to be fully productive. And we know in the case of salespeople, it often is up to a year in enterprise sales. It really seems like a huge deadweight loss for everybody to not amortize that first three to 12 months of reduced productivity across a much longer time period. Because obviously, it's not just the reduced productivity for that person, but it's all the other people who have to invest in the relationship and all that. And then all the damage that's done when they when they leave and the grieving process and all these other things and new people figuring out where the restroom is. Right. So this is all easy to say, but the bottom line is rather than be complacent about this and people are solving this in a lot of ways, I really think it's your job as a leader to make it hard in, in a good way for people to leave. I'm more of a carrot guy than a stick guy. You know, if I had to yeah. say on the margin, I, I really try not to be a stick person, although I'm sure I, you know, I'm not perfect, but you know, so I would err on the side of being as carroty as possible in saying like, why the hell would I leave this place? You know, why the hell would I want to leave this place? I love the people I work with. I'm involved in engaging work. There's a minimum amount of bureaucracy and noise that's impact, you know, thing, things that are kind of dead weight loss. I can, as I'll take some examples from data logics, because I think these are all, I think we authentically live these and, and tried as much as mm-hmm. possible to maintain them. At yep. Oracle, maybe not in all cases, but I have great ways to keep upping my game and the business is investing on wants me to keep learning and increasing my market value. I am regularly challenged. These are these people are going to be really close friends for life. I'm going to work with a lot of them again. I have great exposure to partners. There's a lot of transparency. I feel empowered. All these kinds of things, you know, you go, do I really want to, do I really want to mess with this? You know, what's right. on the other side, even if there's a great logo or more money or whatever. Now we're far from perfect at these things, but the notion is this again gets this notion of, of objective function, which is a term that you use when you're kind of building algorithms on, you know, what are you trying to achieve with artificial intelligence and so on? Let's think about that in the real world, right? What are we trying to achieve here? 
And we wanted people to stick around a long time. And, and you notice very little of what I said was around compensation or titles or status. Right. Now, those things are a given at some level, but they're, they become quite secondary once you hit kind of a, a reasonable level for them. Once someone starts thinking about a job as their lifestyle, how they spend their waking hours, as long as you're, you're stuck in this mode that I'm working for the weekend and I got to you know, put my kids through school and I can't wait to get home and blah, blah, then, then you're back to the basics on kind of Maslow's hierarchy. But we have this huge benefit that you know, our job is not to build the pyramids and you know, lug the stone and all that, right? Our job is as knowledge workers or even as craftspeople is really to build something beautiful of value that is a reward in itself. And if we can do that in an environment that's really fulfilling, it would seem kind of crazy to mess with that thing. And what we saw uh, with this amazing statistic that we, at Data Logics of the top 50 most senior leaders, I think we retained more than 95% of them over a four-year mm-hmm. period prior to our sale. Now, mm-hmm. once we sold the business, retention became more challenging. We still have done an unbelievable job of retention, but it, you, know, you have different levers and so on. But I think that's very unusual for a startup, and I'm not counting my chest because I don't say we were so great that we did this. I, what I say is we were really conscious about that being a goal. Like It wasn't... It was obviously acceptable, and we believe that people have life cycles and they choose to leave or we choose to part ways with them and, and we wish each other the best and can still recognize contributions. So it's not that you don't do right. that, but this notion that you've got to accept kind of sub two years as the norm is, I think, really destructive to not just shareholder value, but the value that clients get and the yeah. value that colleagues get. Yeah. Yeah, it's an incredible, it, I really, I had the chance to experience the culture at Datalogix as, as one of the service providers there working with many of your leaders. What, what is it that leaders have to do to create that culture, that let's call it the 95% culture, the, the culture that really retains those top performers? What specifically do leaders have to do to create that environment that you mentioned where people do see each other as friends, where it's charity, where it's a place that people want to stick around? I think the first thing is authenticity. And, you know, some of these words are just, they sound so buzzwordy and Dilberty yeah. and all that. But so let me just give some underpinnings. The, the first step in authenticity is really knowing who you are. So not what's your persona, what are you trying to project? What do you wish you were? What do other people expect you to be? But like, what resonates is true to you. And I just think as a leader, that's the one table stakes thing. You know, if you have to be, you have to know who you are and you have to find a way kind of at your best, let's say, and then find a way to bring that in full transparency and vulnerability and everything else into the work environment. And I think people are really drawn to that. I think that's a very attractive force. It attracts, right? That's what I mean by attractive. It is an attractor. When people see someone who knows who they are, are comfortable with themselves, and then hopefully have a few things to teach as well as to learn. So for me, for, you know, I can talk about my personal journey rather than the abstract, getting, I think, more and more comfortable with my own personality and quirkiness and all the rest and saying, like, this is who I am. This is who I am not. And so some examples, I, deep, I grew up as the son of a college professor and my mom taught as well at one point in her life. And so I just always deeply valued learning and continuous learning. I'm less of a 
classroom learner probably right. than more of somebody who likes to learn and practice. But I always want to be learning and reading and listening to great podcasts like this one and so on, right? You always want to be sharpening your game. And so my view is a lot of people want that. And that was aligned with who I am and aligned with who I think a lot of people want to be like, God, if this place really cares about continuing to teach me and, and Sal, your presence at Data Logics and that of Barry Shapiro and others was indicative and, and remains at Oracle with the exact coaching we do. We, we put our money where our, where our mouth was, right? We spent so much money training people, not just with technical skills, but to be better leaders. So people saw that authentically we were walking, they saw me get better, albeit from a, you know, admittedly very low base, but they saw me get better over the course of 12 and a half years and said, this guy talked about something he did wrong. Mm -hmm. So A, he's admitted that he's not infallible and he's willing to take the rap on something that went wrong. And he's willing to, he doesn't beat himself up for it, but he tries to get better and he talks about it then. And so you authentically model who you are and that becomes an organizational value. But I really don't think it works when you're trying to model someone else's authenticity, right? It's really, you got to find your own. And we were talking before the podcast started, Sal, about my complete obsession with health, both kind of physical and and mental health. And it increasingly is an all-consuming passion for me that I'm actually kind of committed for the rest of my life to spending virtually all my time and money and energy on, which is, you know, part of the reason I'm with you today because I have a lot of things going on. But, you know, I want to focus on things that make people happier and healthier, including myself, because those are aligned. I think the notion of making health and fitness a complete non-negotiable priority Mm. for everyone in the in the workplace as they define it, right? It, It is accessible. It is encouraged, right? I'm an investor in, um, in Thrive Global, which is Ariana Huffington's yep. company, you know, which is all about kind of de-stressing in the workplace. And her weekly newsletter is great. And you know, there's this thing, there's a stigma now about taking a break for lunch at work, yeah. right? Somehow that's like something junior people do, right? And I, except when I'm traveling, I noticed that I seldom was very good at taking lunch other than slamming it down at my desk, which I know is not good for me personally in every way, right? I don't eat as well. I eat too fast. I'm not focused. But you're also missing out on a chance to have these great healthy connections with people that happen over food. It's just, it's a study going for a walk with someone, eating with somebody. Those are two of my favorite things to do, working out with somebody. Mm -hmm. I love that stuff. Mm -hmm. And so making that a norm rather than an exception is so important and so critical. So that's, you know, that's another big one for me. And again, it's got to be authentically modeled by the leader. If you're not healthy, right? If you're not taking care of yourself, if you're stressed all the time, if you're not eating well, if you're not keeping yourself physically fit, if you are, um, if you're not, you know, if you're suffering from anxiety, depression, et cetera, and not, and not working on it, right, actively, um, because we all have moments, these are all spectrum disorders, where I believe everyone's got anxiety and depression, everybody else to some degree. Um, and I probably have more than others in some cases, right? But I've, I've learned to kind of work on that and just own it. And so I think all that kind of stuff, if you can just deal with your, your junk and de- deal with it in a public way that's not self-flagellating, but is in a way that inspires others. And so the one, one way I think about it, as a leader, your job is to keep yourself healthy. Yes. In all, and again, I'm talking physically and mentally. This is not an option. 
this is not something you do later. This is not something that's going to get easier to do when you turn 35 or 40 or 45 or 50 or 55 or 60. This is something that's going to be at some level harder every day that you postpone it. as you get older. And so your yeah, and so your job right now, right, is to keep yourself healthy. I believe things like time and money are somewhat fixed pies at any given time. I mean, you got to figure out how to grow them, but you're dealing with, you have to think about how much time can I allocate on my schedule today? And even that can be challenged by the way, whether that's actually true, but that's an easier thing to say. My calendar is so much time, but I I've seen in myself and in others, energy is absolutely a renewable resource that is not subject to that fixed pie thinking, right? You've got to figure out how to, how to feed it and renew it. And that's people are, you know, a lot of times I get comments from people like, holy crap, where do you get your passion and energy from and all that? And it's because I work really hard on refilling the coffers. You know, I'm not going to skip a workout because I'm too busy at work. I'm just not going to do it. I'm not going to eat like crap uh, unless I choose to eat like crap for fun or whatever, which I will do also. You know what I mean? But I'm not going to eat like crap as an indulgence because I'm too busy to think about how to eat well. So I'm going to down you know, five sodas and six candy bars tonight. Like I'm not going to do that. And I'm not judging people, by the way, if you do that, I, I want this to come out, right? This isn't about a judgment kind of thing. What I am saying is as a leader, if you want to be a great leader and at our best, what leaders want to do is inspire others, right? And make them, make them help them become better people and more actualized. That's the highest level of leadership, even more than achieving the goal, because that becomes an outcome of that. You've got to model it yourself. And every time that you do things that, you know, where you're not treating yourself with some care and all that, you are giving permission to others to do that as well. Yeah. Oh, Eric, there's so much that we could unpack that we could unpack in, in those couple of statements. A few things that I really want to highlight for our listeners. Number one, you brought up some really key elements. Number one, I heard you say vulnerability, transparency, and, and modeling the development and the learning and just saying, hey, this is where I'm weak and I'm working on, or I've got a coach. And there's something so powerful in that when a leader stands up in front of his or her people and, and lets others what, know what he or she's working on. And, and you, you've done that. And I think that's the authenticity piece. The other, the other component that came up for me as you were talking is doing some coaching with, a, with another executive. And he runs a very successful hedge fund. He said to me, you know, when I retire, I want to be a professor. And I think that's so fascinating that he's got this dream in mind. And part of where I'm pushing him is to think about his role right now as a professor. And his platform is the business and the hedge fund that he's running. Because if he can become more of who he is truly at his core as a leader, he's going to be way more effective. And so I think to your point, this isn't about saying, I want to change my identity to be more like somebody else, but how do I find my own identity to really connect with the core of who I am as a person and be that? Because I think that's when you really build trust and that authentic authentic side of leadership comes out but in a very sincere way. I think you're, you're dead on with that. So yeah, I'm actually, um, I've had kind of a long-term goal to uh, do, I've done guest lecturing, but to actually teach a class. And I'm, I actually have a 
at least verbally agreed to teach a class in the CU engineering school beginning in January to teach. I want to teach, I'm going to teach the leadership class to, to nice. technical people because nice. that's not always an intuitive leap, right? That's not, right. not, not, you know, people who are on the, you know, on more of the business track, most of them have an aspiration if they're in business school to be leaders. That's not always the case, right? For great engineers, it's a little bit more of a disconnect. And so you, you have different challenges. And so I think that'll be a really fun, even though I came more from the business side, I've always worked right. in tech companies. So I've, been, yeah. I've had the privilege of working with and learning from and mentoring a lot of great tech leaders. And they had to find their own, their own stride there. I had certain aspects of wanting to be a leader, I think from a pretty early age, being a, yeah. you know, whatever you want to call it, a type, type A and wanting to control situations, but not really having the... Um, I don't know that I had any or too many innate skills or frankly role models because neither of my parents ever managed people. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't have a lot of that around me. So I, and I don't know that it was completely native. They never wanted to. It wasn't what they did kind of. And so as I kind of went on my own leadership journey, I got tremendous value from leading groups and growing big groups of people around the world and all that, but also so much from the one-on-one interactions as well. And I'm kind of in the midst of a a personal experiment right now, as I've um, yeah, I announced a few months ago that I was going to be retiring from Oracle, and I've decided to take a sabbatical for at least the rest of this calendar year from full time work. I'm done. I'm done officially at Oracle next month, and um, so I'm, a- I'm adding a few. Thank you, yeah. and I'm adding a few boards right now, and I'm about to become chairman of a of a great business that will soon be announced, a great local business in Boulder that joins my passions around kind of software and tech and fitness, which I'm really excited about. And what I'm, and I've been mentoring more and more, uh, you know, CEOs who either that I've invested in personally, or maybe folks I haven't been invested in personally, but I just really enjoy their company and they enjoy mine. And um, we can learn from each other. And those, those relationships have been so rewarding and dimensionalizing that in a different way. And my big question is, can I get my leadership fix without being a full-time CEO? And that was something that I ruled out. I was frankly afraid of doing even a year ago. It just was mm-hmm. so I, my view was I was going to be a full-time CEO nonstop moving from one to another. I've been at Oracle and data logics and Oracle for now 12 and a half years, right. And right. four years for the gig before that. And would just keep doing that maybe into my eighties even. That was kind of my thought. And my current view is, can I have greater impact on these notions of health and happiness, both for myself and for others? Is it even more leveraged in, in this new capacity? And the reality is, I don't know, yeah. but I'm, I'm interested to find out. So this is an experiment. And I think this is one of the great things for leaders. And you can really help, you know, you really help teams realize this. I don't think people experiment enough. I think ways to structure multiple, and this is a way that I kind of work with CEOs who I'm mentoring as well. Um, I really encourage people to do a a series of low-cost experiments for their business and for themselves and just their own operating models. And you you don't need them all to hit. You don't want them all to hit. Right. Right. You want to try new things, keep learning and go, wow, this one worked. I'm going to keep this. I'm going to shuffle this one around. This one's dead. I'm going to move on to this one. And it just keeps life really interesting. But you also are able to keep you're basically training yourself. You know, you're keeping yourself sharp, even with and maybe even more so with the ones that don't end up working out. And so I'm a huge fan of that as well. And again, I'm 
I'm kind of walking my talk there because this phase of my life is one that historically has been quite uncomfortable for me when I'm kind of, you know, quote unquote, between full-time jobs. So I've, right. you know, I've done it a few times in the past and I thought I was going to really enjoy it. And I ended up in, in several cases being pretty miserable after a few months and literally freaking out and driving myself crazy. <laughs> and so, so far, um, quite the opposite has happened, right? I've just, yeah. so many new vistas have opened up and I've been about as happy as I've ever been in my life. And I think highly impactful, mm. but in a, you know, with a less of this structure of going into the office and, you know, doing my weekly leadership calls and all this. So there's an ego, you lose an, there's a little bit of an ego and persona loss that you have, which I think is probably good for you too, where you go, I'm not a CEO anymore. What am I? Right. I'm yeah. a former, I'm a former CEO. That doesn't quite have the same ring to it, you know, yeah, I don't know. Right. But so I think that's a big one though, is you just keep experimenting, do these low cost experiments on yourself, on your org, help others structure them. And you just keep getting a bit better. Yeah. Well, part of what I'm hearing from you, Eric, is you keep coming back to this idea of uh, helping people find that health and that happiness. And part of what I'm hearing is that there's a bigger purpose here for you. It's not just about cranking out a product or the software, but it's really about the people and making a bigger contribution. And it'll be interesting to see how your experiment goes to see if you're actually able to make a bigger contribution being in this, what might feel like a non-traditional role for you. Yeah. And there's, you know, there, I think there's two components, Sal. One is making a bigger contribution. And the other one is getting kind of the meaning and learning that I'm looking for in life to keep mm -hmm. me. Because there, it's yeah. possible that you could objectively say, wow, I'm really able to, you know, have a big impact because I'm working now, let's just say with, you know, there are probably north of 10 now CEOs that I mentor, probably maybe even 20, you know, on an, on an intermittent basis, you know, not necessarily every week, but say every month or so. Right. And a number right. of them I'm invested in, and a number of them are just people who I've become friends, and we've built this great relationship and so on. Having that impact doesn't necessarily mean that you personally are finding the meaning and growth that you're looking for, right? Mm -hmm. So I kind of acknowledge that there are two vectors here, right? One yes. is having the impact, and the other one is making sure that I'm still growing as a person. And this gets into a another thing that's really important to me and I have to figure out how it works for me personally in this new environment. I've always been drawn, and this is, you know, kind of the startup ethos, but I've always been very much drawn towards the model of leadership that I'll call player coach, much more so than the alternative, which I think I call it might be a little bit uh, pejorative, but more the administrator type, right? I mean, I, I want people and I want to be myself on the field who can go deep in at least one or two disciplines who are willing to hang it out there with the late night or the client pitch where you may get rejected or whatever else the case may right. be, right? right? Versus just managing through others, which has a lot of value. But I don't, I think you really got to keep your saw sharpened by being that player coach and still being on the field. And so the, the question about what does it mean to be on the field when you're spending your time as a board member and investor and advisor and mentor, unclear still, unclear to me what exactly that means. I, but I know I need that. I know I need that, not just the impact, but the meaning and the continued feeling of growth. I, I think the minute you are on the pedestal preaching to others as your full-time thing about how you've got it all figured out, I think you're already dead. Yeah. I think it's over. You know, yeah. that doesn't hold anything for me if it's not accompanied 
with like here it's it's more like here's what I'm learning, mm-hmm. not here's what I learned. As the minute you get to the past tense, it, it's just not interesting to me anymore. And I really think that's a path to not being healthy anymore. I think that's when you're you're starting to admit you're kind of an old wise man or whatever at best, right? Right. Well, listen, the two vectors I really want to highlight here because they're higher purpose needs. And we all have needs as humans, things like a need for certainty or a need for variety or a need for love and connection, whatever those needs are. But what I also hear you saying is these are a higher level need. And one is about yourself and growing and learning and developing and changing and evolving. And then the other vector that you mentioned is about helping and contributing to people. And if we're moving both of those forward, boy, anything becomes possible. Yeah, yeah. Um, We've got a few minutes remaining. I want to touch back on something else. You talked quite a bit about health. And this is such a, I think, a critical topic as well. And, And for me, my passion is around rock climbing. I love to climb. It is the one thing that I do in my life that when I'm climbing, I don't think of anything else. I don't think of family. I don't think of friends. I don't think of the stress of work and and anything else that's going on. When I do it, it fills my bucket. It's that renewable energy that you described before. What's your advice for the hard-charging executive? And by the way, if you haven't read Between the Lines, listeners, this is a very results-oriented man. He happens to care a lot about people but he's extremely results-oriented as well. Eric, what's your advice for that results-oriented executive who's driving hard and working 12, 14, sometimes 16 hours a day and putting health on the back burner? I think you got to find a way to make health, the pursuit of health, right? Make it fun, right? I think you got to turn it into a game. That's why I'm a as you know, Sal, I'm really passionate about CrossFit and I'm a level yes. two CrossFit trainer and I'll be, right. I'll be next week, next week I'll be at an industry conference coaching 80 people from all over the world in the South of France on the beach for two CrossFit workouts. And I'm in heaven doing wow. that. You know, yeah. I'm just in heaven That's doing that. So you got to make this health and fitness thing fun. You got to gamify it. Mm-hmm. And for yourself and for others, it's kind of like, I have this like little saying, right, which is if it feels like work, you're not doing it right. right. And I think the same is true about, about health and fitness. Like I'm not one who believes that life should be a schlog. I think you build up your, I think you build up your muscles, both mm-hmm. uh, literally and figuratively in a, in a spirit of play. I think that's the huge win, right? And, and connection, right? So when people want to meet with me, I usually start with, why don't we grab a CrossFit workout? I own a gym, CrossFit, Tinnitus, and Boulder. I say, why don't we uh, meet at the gym? We'll get a workout in and then grab breakfast or a walk. And I used to say, hey, don't be scared. I know it's CrossFit and you may not have tried it and you blah, blah, blah. You may have this injury. And now I don't do that anymore. I'm kind of, I kind of do the presumptive close. Obviously, you don't have to do it. Well, I'm happy to do something else with you too. But I start with that, regardless of age or infirmity or anything else, because I go, wow, this is another way that I can kind of contribute, but in a way that's selfish because I have so much fun with it, which is getting somebody who is like, oh my God, they're like, uh, okay, I guess I'll meet you across it then. And then an hour later, they're you know, sweaty and sore and happy as a clam and feeling so good about themselves. And maybe the next day they'll do a little more. So I think it's finding a way to do that. I think the partners in like accountability are so important to this. I'm sure, Sal, when you climb, you probably have certain folks 
you know, who, who you climb with and you really enjoy their company. And that be, so again, it's a, it's a process orientation. I think things like, I mean, I believe in goals. Absolutely. As you said, I am results oriented, but I, and I, so I think people can be very motivated by, you know, I want to climb this peak or I want to be able to lift this much weight, or I want to run the 5k in this much time. I think those things are great. But I think you got to find joy in the process or you'll get there and you'll be done. I met, I met, a, I sat next to a woman on the plane on the way to San Francisco a few days ago and we started, she heard, she overheard my conversation about my, these great crossfitting shoes. I have no bowls. And, um, and she said, Oh my God, you know, I love those shoes. And we were talking about it and she had started to work out because she's getting married and had lost a bunch of fat and gained a bunch of muscle. And it was so cool because she was talking about she gained 12 pounds of muscle. That was her focus. Not I lost X amount of pounds, but I gained 12 pounds of muscle. And I had, you know, I had to alter my wedding dress and I feel so good about myself. And as I talked to her, I was like, this is not the standard scenario that you see over and over with uh, whether it's the man or the woman saying I'm getting married. I got to look really good for the wedding pictures and my friends, and then I'll let it all go to shit. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't that it was, it was something much better, which is, Oh my God, almost by almost accidentally her, her wedding and getting in shape for a wedding became a catalyst for a lifetime of health and fitness. And we talked about, I mean, if if you know, I can go all day on this stuff. We, we talked for two and a half hours about her journey there. So like whatever you can get as a catalyst, give yourself the rewards, but you're really trying to build it for a lifetime. It's really unbelievable how I think people don't accept this. They're too complacent that you can actually get healthier and more fit and happier as you age for a long, long time to come, way longer than you think. Certainly into your 60s, you can actually become more healthy every year, I believe, even though there are all these forces of gravity working against you. And so this is really topical, bringing it back to leadership. We know what's, I mean, I saw, you know, I saw it happen with my dad. You see it over and over, right? The yeah. traditional thing was, you know, you can't wait to retire. Your job's drudgery, blah, blah, blah. You're, you know, 65, you punch out. And then it's just a steep decline, right? Cognitively, yeah. physically, everything. Right. And it's, we're so fortunate that we know better now and can live a very different way and can actually make things better and better. So again, I'm doing kind of an early experiment in this right now to a limited degree. That's why it's a kind of a low cost experiment, which is what I like. (laughs) And worst case, you'll find me back in the CEO chair in six or nine months or something. And maybe that'll be a best case. Maybe it'll be great. But there's an alternative path, which is, hey, you know, maybe I don't need to do that right now or ever again. Like, who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just turned 50 myself and I have three young kids. I have a six-year-old and a three-year-old. So that'll keep uh, you young too. That's a great way to stay young. But I also like when I'm 70 and my kids are only 20, I want to be healthy. I want to be active. I want to be around for them in 20 years. And so I, I have to be aware of that now. And part of what I think the mindset shift for many executives is how can I be successful at work and then also be successful in these other areas of my life? What if it was a yes and instead of I'll do this now and then I'll do that piece later? to find both fulfillment and financial success. What if it was both of those things? And you, and you can have both. I, I really believe it. I don't think this is na- naive. I don't think it's utopian. And I also don't think someone could take a cynical view and say, oh, easy for you to say now, yeah. right? You've been, yeah. you've been lucky. 
you've, you know, you've, you've been, you've worked hopefully pretty hard to earn some right. of it, but certainly been, you know, in, insanely lucky. And, you know, I'm 30 years into my career now and, oh, it's easy for you to sit there and say you can have both. The reality is I got to grind away 80 hours a week at this job I hate. And because I've got to pay back my college expenses and I, you know, I didn't have the benefit of my parents paying for college and just go through the, but I believe all those are realities, but I don't think, I, I think that's a very limited view. And I think if you'll find that if you can crack open that view a little bit, you can actually have both. And the key is to me, this is for me, it may not work for everybody, but I think it's the highest aspiration here, I think mm -hmm. is work, work life integration instead of work life balance. I think yes. we did ourselves a huge disservice by this term of work life balance coming into the vernacular. I completely reject it. I just completely reject it as the yeah. right answer. I think it can work for people, but I think it is a sub-optimized goal. The best thing to do, again, is when your work doesn't feel like work, when the lines are blurred, this does not mean I'm a workaholic. It's quite the opposite. It means I want to spend my, as much of my life as possible not feeling like I'm working. So what does it feel like to not work? It feels like you're playing. It feels like you're floating across the floor. And I've, I've had the benefit of having days and weeks and maybe even months go by that way where I'm not, it's not that I'm not present, I'm highly present, but I'm dancing through life, right? And then I also have known the alternative, including at some point, a number of points over the last year, both personally and professionally, where it was hard to get out of bed in the morning. And, you know, and the, the, the seconds are ticking by. And, you, and so which one do you want to choose? And how are you going to empower yourself to make that change? And more importantly, model it for others, model it for your kids. Because Sal, I think you and I could both agree because we both have very young kids. There's nothing better than figuring out how to model to the kids that this is what life is. This is when work doesn't feel like work. Yes, you work your ass off, but it doesn't even feel that way. It, you know what it feels like? It feels like you're cheating. Because it, it shouldn't be that easy. Yeah. But it can be. Not always. And you, again, you got to be willing, you got to be able to dig in on the days when it, when it doesn't feel that way. And I'm a bit, yeah. I don't know that we're going to have time to get into it today, but I have a whole diatribe on, um, on what I call acute stressors and the value of acute stressors, which is very much when it doesn't feel that way. But I think that's what we, that's what we should aspire to. And we should not let ourselves off the hook. I'm not, in some ways, I really believe in delayed gratification and certainly you know, people would think that I do because they see how disciplined I can be around working out and work and so on. But in other ways, I don't believe in it. Like from a career standpoint, I think you can actually kind of live the dream even early in your career and, and shift your mindset, but also shift what you actually do. I want to tell you, okay, that's time to tell you about one thing we did at work really recently. Great. And I'm so, I'm so excited about it. And I got this incredible note yesterday in the mail along with this great book from um, the guy who put this together for us. So, uh, so we've been really focused kind of, you know, health, fitness first, right? Not just an afterthought at right. uh, data logics and the data cloud, right? For forever. It's been, we're, we're, you know, 12 years into this journey now. And we've really tried to be a beacon for others, right? So other companies have adopted stuff that we have and those kinds of things. And as we got part of Oracle, and also as we opened new offices, we had two new challenges, right? One was I couldn't, by fiat as the benevolent dictator, 
I couldn't say, we're going to do this crazy thing. We're going to build a CrossFit gym in one of our conference rooms, which we mm-hmm. actually were able to, we actually were able at Oracle to build two CrossFit gyms on the campus. You know, I kind of forced that one to happen by saying I wouldn't move into the corporate <laughs> facility until those were done. But what about all the other people? You know, so we, you know, right today, we probably have about plus or minus 500 people in Colorado and a thousand in other locations all around the world, you know, four continents, et cetera. So if you're in Colorado, you have a fundamentally different experience in many ways. But one of them is you have this incredible gym and training available to you for free that people spend $200 a month on, right, and have to drive to. And now it's in the office every day and it's world class. And so what can we do? To, and, and other great stuff, too. But that's one example. What can we do elsewhere? So this, this great guy, um, one, of, one of my colleagues, Emery Neely, is based in New York, reached out to me and I didn't know him. And this was awesome, right? He was in a, you know, he was in, in a group in New York and he said, Hey, I've been so inspired by the focus on health and fitness. And I'd love to help bring that more tangibly to other parts of the Oracle data cloud. And, you know, what do you think we could do? And so I said, I've got an idea. And I gave him the idea and he then completely ran with it. And the idea was this once a quarter, or maybe it's three times a year in our CrossFit gym, we do a what's called a clean challenge where people sign up and they spend 30 days and they basically join teams and they get points for doing things to make themselves healthier. And we started with, you know, working out and eating in certain ways. And over time, because we're, you know, we're this enlightened boulder gym, we said, you know, you've got to meditate every day if you want the full points and, you, you know, the various other things. And so Emery and I chatted about it and brainstormed and he really ran with this thing. And we said, look, we don't want this to be for the athletes per se in the Oracle Data Cloud. We want it to be available to everybody, accessible to everybody, not just available, mm-hmm. accessible. So we, we, we did some real innovations here. And we said, this is going to be less about like hardcore workouts. Yes, you'll get a point for working out at least 30 minutes every day. But, you know, y'all, we're going to make it so you have to take a walking meeting to get your points. You know, once during the month, you've got to have a 24-hour fast from any electronics at all. You know, you got to get seven or eight hours of sleep every night. You got to ask somebody out to lunch that you have not had lunch with before. You've got to read a pay, you got to read a book, a physical book about something that's not work related. (laughs) When is the last time you did that? Right. So, and so it was unbelievable. And we got over a hundred people signed up, including from our India office, by the way, the first time we did it, it was awesome. And so we just did it again a second time. And when, again, when I say we, I don't want to take much credit for this. I've sponsored it and kind of got the ball rolling, but Emery really nailed this. Over two, I told him, I said, guys, this time I want over 200 people to sign up. And signups were a little low the second time and blah, blah. And then we ended up with over 200 people. And the second time, we actually got some other parts, a few dribs and drabs from other parts of Oracle signed up, some tenants on the Oracle campus in Boulder. And then even a few partners and clients got involved. And so we were like, we got to go even further this next time. So we're now, we're now talking about rolling it out to other big parts of Oracle. And, you know, I think the goal I would have this time, and it's easy for me to throw this out because I probably won't even be at Oracle anymore (laughs) when it actually launches. But I think we can have 500 people this time. And Sal, if I could read you the notes we got from people and the feedback, you do win. Like there are prizes if you win, but that is not at all what it's about, right? What it's about is somebody saying, I read the first book I've read in five years for fun, and it was unbelievable. I I didn't remember what that was like, and I'm doing it again. Somebody in New York said, 
I always, always, always took the subway to work. And I walked to work 25 out of 30 days, no matter what the weather was. And now that's my default going forward, like kind of for the rest of my life. So it was these micro changes that were just right. so frigging cool. Yes. And all people Love needed it. was some ideas to spur them along. Yeah. And the other cool thing, when you look at outcome, we, at the gym, we measure body fat and all these other fun things. You know, people can put a tape measure on their waist and we see great impact. This, that wasn't the goal here, here. The goal here was how do you feel about work, you know, and how do you feel about yourself? Mm. And that was what was so amazing. People tangibly felt different about being part of the Oracle data cloud. Like not a few anecdotes, but like almost everybody, everybody who went, let's just say two thirds of the people actually made it through after signing up and really were like somewhat to very engaged. They all felt better about their colleagues and about work and about being there. And this was the kind of place that cared about it. And then in addition, learn some, some new habits that hopefully will stay with them for the long term. So that's, that's a cool way that we did something. It took a lot of time. By the way, this was not non-trivial time. We actually yeah. been talking about how we're going to staff yeah. it. So I don't want to understate it, but it took no money. You know what I mean? This wasn't like we got to spend a million dollars on this or that, or you've got, oh yeah, but that only appeals to the great athletes. You know, it wasn't that kind of thing. We also, again, we walked we walked the talk. I got up two of our top leaders at a uh, Jonah Goodhart and Robin Opie. Jonah Goodhart, CEO of Moat, which mm -hmm. we acquired, and Robin Opie, our longtime, who you know, lo mm -hmm. our longtime head of chief analytics officer, head of data science. Between the two of them, Robin and Jonah lost over 100 pounds in the last wow. two years. Wow. Okay. And, and these guys, Robin was a near Olympic athlete when he was younger. Jonah, I don't think, has ever prioritized working out. Robin's 6'5", you know, Jonah's 5'7". They both have young kids. They both have these huge jobs with tons of people working for them and a lot of responsibility. This wasn't like an inconvenience for them. This wasn't a distraction from being great leaders or great family men. This was something that they had put on the back burner and said, I will deal with later and accepted the inevitability of aging. And they both kind of came alive through it. And the coolest thing about it is they did it in such different ways. Right. Jonah's a vegetarian and he's just like running obsessively seven days a week and doing push-ups obsessively seven days a week. Robin's doing CrossFit with a personal trainer and mixing it up and throwing around heavy weights and eating as much meat as possible. So it's not to prescribe how you do it. Right? Wow. It's, just, it's just this general mindset of showing that these two guys who are in their 40s with about as big jobs as you can imagine. And I got him on stage and interviewed him. And like, just to show people, don't, don't put yourself out of the game here. There's a path for you and it's yeah. going to make you better at everything. Yeah. It's not, it's not about compromising other stuff. It's absolutely mm -hmm. both to your point. Awesome. Uh, just amazing. Eric, you've made a huge different, a difference in so many people's lives and you're just getting started. To me, that's, that's the incredible thing. And I can't wait to hear where all of this is going for you and the experiments that you're running in your life. I know this has been extremely helpful and inspirational for our leaders. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks, Sal. I love I love what you're doing with this podcast. It's, I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to make a big difference, and it is making a big difference to a lot of people, and it's a, it's a privilege to be, uh, to be invited to join you, and I really enjoyed it. Awesome. Thank you, Eric. Thanks. Take care. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Sal Sylvester on the Future of Leadership podcast. 
You can get session notes on our website at 512solutions.com. That's the numbers 512solutions.com. Please follow and like the podcast on iTunes or wherever you're tuning in. And if you want to learn more about how we can help transform your people into confident and action-oriented leaders, please check out our website at 512solutions.com. I look forward to continuing the conversation about the future of leadership. I'm out.